0: Thank you, uh, Mr. President, for your commitment to advancing our partnership. Hi, it's Lacey. This is an important moment for both our countries, in my view, and uh, for the world, quite frankly. Biden. <inaudible>
1: before U.S. President Joe Biden shook hands with Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva this month, <inaudible> before the riots that broke out at the country's capital, demanding he step down, and before thousands of people came out to cheer his inauguration, Lula addressed his political allies on the campaign trail. In the tape, he paces a well-lit stage in a black suit and a shirt with no tie. There's a panel of experts seated behind him. I want to tell you all that if at the end of this mandate in 2026, every Brazilian is having coffee, lunch, and dinner once again, I will have fulfilled the mission of life. And as he speaks about hunger in Brazil, he breaks down in
0: tears.
1: It was an emotional moment. The thing is, I never expected hunger
2: to make a comeback to this country,
1: ever. Brazil is one of the world's largest agricultural exporters. It dominates when it comes to delivering beef, coffee, and soybeans around the world. It's also a top producer of biofuels. Just last year, the EU tripled its imports of ethanol made from Brazilian sugarcane. Even still, more than 33 million people in the country are going hungry.
3: Lines of hungry people waiting for a meal have doubled in Brazil during the past two years. Every morning, more and more homeless women and children go through the rubbish searching for food.
1: Today on Things That Go Boom, Brazil's new president fighting his oldest challenges. Again.
0: What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremang Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: There is a lot going on with Brazil right now. So there is so much we could get into on this show. You've got Bolsonaro hanging out in Orlando, eating KFC.
2: Jair Bolsonaro is reportedly living in Florida. Local supporters
3: stopping by to try and see him. Welcome to America. You can stay here as long as you want.
1: There's the ins and outs of President Biden's meeting with Lula.
0: Brazil is a country which the people peace? Brazil the is a country that people enjoy peace, de democracy,
3: work, de carnaval.
0: and carnival.
1: But because so much of Brazil's GDP is tied up in food and in farming, and because this is a season about food, we thought we would focus on one particular thing. Figuring out how we can understand Lula and where he wants to go next through his stomach. And so we thought we'd start, as you do, by asking his friends...
3: Our main priority for 2022 was to elect Lula.
1: When Cassia Bechar learned that her group, the Landless Workers Movement, had helped Lula win his election against Bolsonaro, it was a huge relief.
3: As president, but it was also about the whole project that Bolsonaro represents, right, which is a racist, misogynistic, and a project of hunger and hate. So for us, it was a very important political victory as well as an electoral victory. We put all our efforts and strength and people in the streets for that.
1: The Landless Workers, or MST, were founded almost four decades ago to pressure the state to confront the country's huge land inequality.
3: Our main task is to show people in Brazil and worldwide, that it is possible to feed people in a different way.
1: 2.8% of landowners in Brazil own more than half of the country's arable land. The MST hopes to force Brazil's government to shift farmland that isn't being used properly by big agribusiness
3: into the hands of small local farmers. The Brazilian constitution says that every land, private or not, must fulfill its social function. And by social function, the Constitution says it needs to produce a minimum level which is determined by the government. Second, it needs to comply with uh, environmental law. Third, it needs to comply with labor law. Any land which does not follow one of those requirements must be bought by the state and given for a reform.
1: One of the biggest ways that the MST does that is by taking over fallow pastures controlled by the biggest landowners and either invading or occupying the land, depending on how you see it.
3: What we do when we occupy, not invade, when we occupy a land is just to show and to make pressure under the government to follow what the Constitution says. But the only way to make agrarian reform really to materialize in Brazil And to get out of the paper and to be implemented in practice is through people's struggle. So when we occupy a land, we just say to the government, please come here, do your job, and give it for a government reform.
1: Three years ago, reporter Michael Fox went out to one of southern Brazil's largest land occupations in the hillsides of the state of Paraná.
2: It's in an area, the MST was already very well organized. There were many settlements nearby and this occupation itself was very well organized. They had a really set up school um, with roughly 400 kids studying there. And this is the reason why I wanted to go specifically to this one. Bolsonaro had recently been elected. He called the MST, the Landless Workers' Movement, terrorists. He had said we need to shut them down, make them illegal throughout the country. And in particular, he wanted to close their schools.
1: So Michael went out to see some of these schools and what he found was kids learning.
2: There's no smart boards or TVs and iPads or whatever else. So the kids are doing and and working with what they can. But what's exciting about it, what's really exciting is kind of the sense of experiential learning. They all have a teacher. The class is around 15 to 20 kids for each class. And so, you know, they're using workbooks, they're using the books they have access to. And then it's, you know, everything around them, right? You have the, the settlements where they're growing and uh, raising cattle and milking cows. And, and so they're constantly going out to the different settlements to, to learn from the MST farmers who used to be occupied and who are now growing their own food and stuff like that. At the school?
1: A seven-year-old girl named Kathleen was just starting to learn to read.
2: When I met her, she was in second grade, and she was just learning to read and write. And math was her favorite subject, probably because she didn't know how to read and write beforehand. But she said, I love math. But, you know, I love learning to read and write. It's amazing, and she's doing really well. The kids are all reading in their schools, and they're advancing, and her mother, Rosangela, was just
3: overjoyed.
2: You know, she went to one of these schools herself. She knew how important it was for her. And one of the things that Rosangela just kept repeating to me, was how different these schools are. The sense of community and the sense of collectivity amongst the students.
1: Rosangela grew up on another MST occupation with her parents, and they got land, but she wasn't quite old enough to get her own parcel.
2: And so that's why she decided to to join this one in 2015, was when they actually occupied this land in Paraná. And she's been there ever since. She has a small two-bedroom wooden home and she's there with her kids, and, you know, when I met her, she was sitting behind the house in their little backyard there. And it's not big, but they have everything.
3: Alface, tomate, Every
2: green so and vegetable so that you can so imagine, so. from lettuce so, to so. garlic.
3: That right? and salad.
2: That's the thing is, each of these homes has their own little garden behind them because they're setting things up for when they have their land.
1: Oh, that's amazing. It sounds absolutely beautiful. But she told you there have also been a lot of struggles, right?
2: There absolutely have been. I mean, where she lives, it can actually snow. It can get down to zero here in southern Brazil. That's just the elements in and among itself of trying to get water. There wasn't water there when they first came there. There was no electricity for the first while. But also they face a lot of repression and hostility from local police, local landowners. Just about a year after they first arrived, there was an attack on members of their settlement. Uh, Two people were killed. Seven were injured. They were shot by local security forces contracted by a local logging company.
3: But
1: Rosangela told him there isn't anything you can't handle and overcome.
2: And that's pretty inspiring. But now, even now that they have their wooden homes, it's it's even better.
3: She
2: told me that out there, they just call the MST riffraff. Uh, But actually, the organization, she said, is really organized and that they're able to achieve a lot more than what anyone in Brazil could imagine. That level
1: of organization is part of what got them through the Bolsonaro years.
2: It's a huge force. I mean, just under the pandemic, the MST across the country donated 10,000 tons of food to poor communities up and down the country. Up in Recife in northeastern Brazil, which is one of the poorer areas of Brazil, they had these soup kitchens that basically they would farm the product, they would get the product in the city, they would then organize and make these soup kitchens for folks that were homeless or or needing food on the streets. And this is during the pandemic at a time when the situation was really bad in Brazil and there wasn't that much support from the government, particularly in those early days, and particularly in terms of food security, in terms of getting the food that they needed. And so the MST, from very early on, said, this is what we do. We farm. And that's what we're going to be doing in order to help Brazilians up and down the country. The two settlements just down the road from the land occupation where Rosangela lives, they produce 80,000 gallons of milk a day, just two different settlements. So I mean, those are just some specifics, but it's really massive. And of course, their big thing is food security. Their big thing is growing food for Brazilians. Obviously, Brazil is the largest exporter of soy, the largest exporter of beef in the world. And their whole thing is we need to have land to produce food for Brazilians. No one should be hungry. So
1: obviously so much has changed between 2019 and now, but you've been in touch with folks and still keeping up with all of this. Is there anything that you think that that occupation that you visited could show us about what it took for the MST to get some of their recent wins
2: with Lula in charge now? Absolutely. I mean, the tenacity, right, and the the discipline and the organization to just keep things going. Those occupations, part of the reason why they're able to do that now is because they have the support of the land settlements where people have already achieved their land and where a certain percentage of their farming is then going back to then supporting people in those land occupations so they have food and whatnot and it's being donated from the people from the same organization. It's important for us to remember that Bolsonaro promised in the lead up to his 2018 campaign that he would not give one more centimeter of land to indigenous communities. Uh, the same thing for traditional black communities, Quilombola communities, and he kept that promise. He didn't do any land reform throughout his government. And one of the things that people said to me back in 2019 was, we are in active resistance. They're, they weren't going to give in, they weren't going to run away. But so many people also told me, look, we have faced governments before that were antagonistic to our movement and we just kept at it. Obviously having Lula in is a complete change and in fact, six members of the MST won local office this last election. It was the first time that they put up their own candidates for local election and they won in many states. So the MST is really excited and they're gonna continue to hold Lula's feet to the fire to make sure that land reform happens and people can get their land.
3: We said to the president, you have three months. This is not something that you have. You can wait to start dealing with. And dealing with hunger means also dealing with the issue of land, dealing with the issue of agrarian reform, dealing with the issue of peasant agriculture, dealing with the issue of food sovereignty.
1: Cassia says that she and the landless workers are giving Lula's government 100 days to show that they're serious about this. And it's not just an empty threat. In the past, Lula faced big protests from the MST, who said he wasn't giving them land fast enough, and even that he was too close to big ag. But the activists who helped him get into office
3: aren't the only voices that Lula has to think about. It's not gonna be an easy government. It's gonna be a government that's gonna be permanently under threat.
1: So what kind of balance will he try to strike? And how does he hope it can feed hungry people? That's after the break. To understand why ending hunger is so important to Lula, you have to understand Lula's life up to now.
0: This is somebody who's been through a lot in his life. He left the Brazilian Northeast, which at the time was a very underdeveloped region, to go to Sao Paulo with his mother, who was looking for some opportunities. That's Fabio
1: Desai Silva, a professor of international relations and Brazilian studies at the University of Oklahoma who's followed Lula closely.
0: He grew as this meta worker with a limited education and suddenly realized that he had great leadership skills and he built a union and he built a party and he became the first working class president in Brazilian history.
1: Fabio says that before Lula's first term, he made a promise to Brazil's Congress. He was going to make sure that Brazilians could eat three meals a day. And by the beginning of his second term in 2007, some of his efforts were starting to pay off. The Bolsa Família, which is the main instrument of the Zero Hunger or
0: Zero program, which was received by the poor communities and criticized by some privileged sectors, had two effects. On the one hand, it helped many people rise
1: out of poverty and it also contributed to making our economy more dynamic and more balanced. Brazil would go on to keep fine-tuning a mix of cash transfers, social programs, and cheap local food in schools and cafeterias. Supply contracts meant that groceries for school lunches would come from nearby farmers, making it worthwhile for those farmers to grow vegetables instead of corn. In other words, Lula had big plans for his second term, and Brazil was riding high enjoying a global commodities boom. At what time in our history have
0: we seen a confluence that has been so favorable and auspicious? I like to say that Lula has both the virtue and the fortune, right, using Machiavellian terms. During his first two terms, we had the commodities boom, especially driven by the Chinese growth that happened in the 2000s. So for a country that exports a lot of agricultural products, but also other raw materials, it was a great moment for Brazil. When you have that surplus in your trade balance, you have more resources that you can employ, not only in social policy, but also in economic development. And that was the virtual cycle that Lula had in his favor.
1: Brazil used the money from the economic boom to pay for more social programs. And a healthier working class made Brazil a better place to do business.
0: Not only was he able to put together this social policy that was very effective, but also the economy was undergoing a good moment, which translated into jobs creation.
1: All of this meant that the president, who was once a kid going hungry in the sticks, was now making the fight to feed people a major part of his international image. By the time that Lula left office in 2010, he had an 80% approval rating. And a year later, his handpicked successor was carrying on the torch. The country started a center for excellence with the UN's Food Administration Organization. And they reached out to countries like Haiti to share how ending hunger could be done.
0: Some of the social policies that the government had adopted were exported. I mean, we had public servants from Brazil traveling to all these countries to teach people in other countries how to put together their own social policies.
1: By now, it's probably clear. For Lula, food isn't just a domestic issue. It's a way to stake out Brazil's vision for itself on the global stage. And his personal story ends up connected to food in a way that you might not expect. A way that brings us up to Lula's lowest point. During his first two terms while he was supporting small-scale local farmers, he was also thinking about how to grow the country's agribusiness. One of the ways that he tried to do that was with a nationalized fertilizer program.
0: Fertilizers was one of the main things that they had in mind precisely because of the role that Brazil plays in the global Food industry. I mean, it's a country that exports so much, and it needs to be uh, more self sustainable. So, what they did was to use Petrobras, which is this national oil company, to develop a local industry on fertilizers. And there was something that was very unfortunate, which is the fact that Petrobras was caught in this big anti corruption investigation called Lava Jato.
1: It was called Operation Car Wash. The big state owned industries built up by Lula and his successor, Dilma Rousseff, now faced serious accusations of internal rot. That corruption soon led to Dilma's impeachment and, in 2018, Lula's imprisonment. The Supreme Court later decided that Lula's charges were politically motivated, just in time for him to run in this election. But we have to acknowledge that many officials in the company and close to him still have dirty hands. And when Bolsonaro's administration took power in 2019, they didn't just want to clean house. They wanted to privatize as much state-run stuff as they could, especially when it came to Petrobras.
0: It became very easy for, especially the opposition, to dismantle some sectors of this company, uh, such as, for example, they had a branch that was producing chemicals, and within that, uh, fertilizers and all of that either got deactivated or sold to private companies. So in that process, Brazil really lost all this effort that had been put into building this company that would produce fertilizers. And, uh, you know, a few years later, we had the war on Ukraine, which really proved that the concern was correct. Brazil, given how much it depends on agricultural production, It should be making sure that it has some self-sufficiency when it comes to fertilizers.
1: Fabio says we can actually see this dependency playing out today, with how both Bolsonaro and Lula have refused to rebuke Russia too sharply. Russia is a major fertilizer exporter around the world, including to Brazil.
0: I think it definitely plays some role. If you trace this back to the history of Brazilian diplomacy, I think, The reason goes beyond merely economic interests. It's really how Brazil wants to be represented in the global world order.
1: But it's important not to just chalk up this approach to sheer pragmatism. This is about a deeply held belief of Lula's that Brazil is best off not just hitching its wagon to one superpower, but holding its own as a middleman in a multipolar world.
0: Listeners may remember that Lula... When he finished his second term in 2010, he was really a global icon, right? Uh, He was able, for example, to uh, work with China, Russia, India, and South Africa to build the BRICS as a new bloc, uh, negotiating the terms of global governance and so on. Before President Obama was able to cut a deal with Iran on nuclear issues, Brazil had actually facilitated a conversation, along with Turkey and Iran, that had led to a first version of a deal. And he actually had this idea that uh, global South countries should occupy more of a central role in global conversations.
1: But that vision of Brazil as a great mediator will likely be a tougher sell than it once was, both at home and abroad. A lot has changed since Lula first left office in 2010. Tensions between the United States and our competitors have reached a heated pitch. Oh, my God. China's angry that the U.S. shot down its
2: balloon. Suspected Chinese spy balloon. spy balloon passing over the United States.
0: The Biden-Harris
1: administration responded swiftly to protect Americans and safeguard against the balloon's collection of sensitive information. And selling your nation as the great middle ground kind of depends on things at home being great. But things aren't going as well as 13 years ago. Brazil's GDP is growing, but that growth is expected to slow over the next three years. Journalist Fabiana Menezes says that the low price of Brazilian currency makes sending things like beef out of the country even more key for the economy, while importing food or farming equipment gets more expensive.
3: Despite the high prices of commodities and and everything, The exports right now, they are not translating into growth as they did in the past for the country. Because of the devaluation of the currency, the the production costs are also higher.
1: The country's social support net isn't what it used to be either. Many of the programs that made Lula famous were dismantled under Bolsonaro. Almost 700,000 people in Brazil died during the pandemic, an official death count second only to the United States. Brazil's lawmakers spent a lot on emergency COVID funding. So the country is broke. Which matters, because Lula has two main tools to fight hunger in Brazil. You can fund more social services, and you can pass new policies that fuel local food. Fabian told me that the president can't do either alone.
3: The part of the Congress, it's huge. And Lula does not have a majority to easily pass important bills. For example... The new agriculture caucus, the politicians in the House, they are very much formed by the opposition. And they are already talking about reversing some of the changes that the government implemented in its first month.
1: Brazil's Congress has gained power over the past decade, and it's conservative. Bolsonaro's party has the largest number of seats. To keep them from trying to drive the bus, Lula has to court parties on the center-right, and make concessions that he might not always like to make. It's just one more interest that Lula will have to juggle as he stakes out Brazil's image, and his own, as the great mediator. And it will be tough. But, as Fabio points out, Lula's dealt with tough
0: before. He was prosecuted. He was incarcerated. I, at some point, believed that he would die in jail. But he was able to turn this around and uh, make a fabulous come back to politics. And I think what he's doing now is to create a space for the country to rebuild its democracy.
1: Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. This episode was produced by Katie Toth and me, and edited by Sahar Khan, Nikki Galtland, and Christina Stella. Our music for this show is written by Darian Shulman, and Robin Wise makes each episode sound as mind-blowing as the discontinued KFC Double Down.
2: Oh, this is a chicken sandwich.
1: Thanks to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible, the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Plowshares Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. Thanks as well to some of the fantastic experts who spoke with us on background. Larissa Packer at Grain, James McDonald at the USDA, and Professor Soros Gonzalez at PUC-Rio. If you're listening and you like what we do, we would love to hear from you as always. Go on over and leave us a review and come visit us anytime on social at Inkstick Media. We'll see you right back here to talk about an exciting little grain with the power to maybe change the world in two weeks.
3: Bolsonaro he's trying to get his six-month tourist visa now, right? So <laughs> we have been saying to our comrades in the U.S., you know, comrades, you cannot have him planning the plots from the U.S. He needs to answer to justice.